Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon or good morning. You're listening to Pro Wrestling World Talks. I am your host, Daniel Burke, this evening. And I have a very special guest with me tonight, um, a playwright, a wrestling historian, promoter, owner of New England Championship Wrestling, and now a novelist with The Last Fall coming out, in, which is already out now, out on Kindle yes. and uh, Amazon and also in hard copy as well. Uh, so make sure to pick that up. Uh, Bret Hart's favorite Goldberg, Sheldon Goldberg. Thanks for joining the program <laughs> Thank <tonight>, you. Sheldon. <laughs> um, I was actually watching uh, the real, the unreal story of professional wrestling earlier today to kind of get a brush up on okay. uh, some things because I'm known as the scholar around these parts of this program. Uh, and you have an extensive more knowledge than I do, which is saying something considering the fact that I've been following this industry for well over 30 years. Um, and so having this discussion tonight and also to talk about your other projects that you're working on, including the last fall, um, is extremely important to me. I've been an admirer. Uh, we've met in the past. Um, and also too, about, you know, an independent promoter, um, the one thing that I can say about you is the fact that I have never heard anything negative or anything uh, from a worker or anything of that nature saying that Sheldon did this, Sheldon did that. You are one of the few in the industry that seems to have a clean record and well-respected by talent and everybody in the wrestling community. And that is a huge huge thing especially nowadays uh concerning the fact of and plus i've worked with indie promoters um and the fact is is that you were probably one of the only ones that i've looked at and i've said that he does everything right um and so i don't know about you... that but, but i try <laughs> at least it's ha handling talent because like i said um you can look at Every promoter, every almost every indie promoter, and there's always that story, that horror story from talent. Mm -hmm. But with you, I've never heard it. I've never heard a bad word spoken about you. So that's uh, I to have that in the wrestling business is huge because in the wrestling business there are a lot of people that you know as promoters that some people don't trust. Um, you know, they're always thinking that they're trying to get one over on them but you're one of the few like that i have never heard anything really negative said about you well i never tried to get anything over on anybody i was trying to do a good job and maybe make a few dollars in the process so you know i i didn't have any reason to to try to you know underhandedly work with anyone or, or cheat anyone out of anything that wasn't my thing i just wanted to uh uh, have a good experience and a successful experience. So using those guidelines, I just, uh, you know, tried my best to keep my nose clean and uh, do the best job that I could. You also had um, probably one of the, the hottest independent scenes here in the Northeast with New England Championship Wrestling. Um, extremely successful. Um, a lot of great talent have come out of there. Um, and also you were running the women's promotion as well, which you were ahead of that game by at least five years where right, wrestling right. where women's wrestling became more prevalent in the States. Uh, I mean, of course, Japan, it was always a big thing, especially in all Japan back in the nineties and also with stardom and things of that nature currently. Right. But as far as the United States is concerned, you were one of the first promoters to actually have an entire promotion just dedicated to women. 
and, Us and Shimmer. Yes, and it was you were way ahead of the curve on that. And mm-hmm. some of the tournaments, I mean, I remember you had the um, the Iron Eight Championship and things of that nature that you were these right uh, really cool concepts that kind of it was kind of like PWG on the West Coast and then on the East Coast. You guys with New York New England Championship really kind of had. I think the pulse of where indie wrestling was going to go, especially in the last 10, 15 years or so. I think if you look back at NECW and there are a couple of easy and interesting ways to do it. One is to uh, go on YouTube and and look up uh, our channel, which is NECW wrestling and find uh, the 20th anniversary collection, which is 20 matches representing 20 years of new England championship wrestling and you look at another series up there called NECW Legendary, and, and you'll see a lot of matches that represent a lot of talent before they became famous, uh, a lot of uh, talent that probably should have become more famous than they were, but were really tremendous, and and uh, you'll find a lot of great stuff there. And I think that really bears out the legacy of the company. Um, are, Do you feel kind of fulfilled uh, with the way that the, the rise of indie wrestling has come in the last five years. I mean, everything since kind of like all in um, the show in Chicago back in five years ago, kind of kickstarted it. And then of course we had the inception of all the championship wrestling um, and, you know, a, a lot of these other promotions as well, like major league wrestling and the rise of kind of secondary, I wouldn't say secondary promotions, but alternative promotions to maybe the, big company that seems where WWE mm-hmm. right now has seemed to kind of gotten their stride in the last year and a half as well. Um, I, wrestling really is, do you think it's kind of entering kind of another boom phase or is it just, cause you look at WWE. Yes. The numbers are there. Like their attendance mm-hmm. has grown. Their numbers have grown. Their numbers have stayed steady. They are making a lot of money. And then we look at all elite wrestling and the fact that they did have Wembley, which the numbers are what they are. I mean, they've been disputed. Um, and then we have them having issues trying to fill four to 5,000 in a 10,000 seat building. Um, and so my question is kind of, do you think there's a wrestling boom or do you think the with some companies and some that just still kind of need to kind of try to figure things out? Well, I think that if you look at what's going on right now, um, WWE is in a boom period. AEW is not. They're on the downslide. Uh, Impact, changing their name to TNA, they're on the downslide. Ring of Honor, downslide. Uh, MLW, um, they haven't found the kind of TV deal that they really need to get them to click uh, I hope NWA with their deal forthcoming with the CW is going to find that. I, I I happen to like their product and think that what Billy's trying to do is interesting, but you know, he's in a difficult position. He doesn't have the same bankroll as Tony Khan. And, you know, he's had a, a, a limited ability to expose his product out there being, you know, stuck on YouTube and all that, but that's about to change for them. But, uh, you know, you look at it, local independents and they, they seem to be trying. I think people want to go out and they want to have a live pro wrestling experience. Uh, and they want to have uh, an experience that's affordable. 
So I think on the on a local level, a lot of these independent companies are, are doing pretty well. But you're talking about doing pretty well in like a 300 seat VFW hall or you know a, a 500 seat armory. You're not talking about doing well in a in an arena. So I think there's good and there's bad. You know, uh, WWE's doing well. I think the other other companies that are, you call secondary companies are not doing so well. Uh, they're, they're trying to compete on the same stage as WWE, and you just can't do that. Uh, it, it's just not doable. Um, but, you know, I, I think re- pro wrestling in general, in, in total, is probably healthier now than it was five or ten years ago. Uh, it, it's just healthier in a different way. You know? Um, do you think that a lot of it has to do with these, you know, do you think Tony Khan kind of is maybe shot too close to the sun with some of his decisions? Um, and I'm not trying to I think he's him. just inexperienced. Right. I just think he's inexperienced at running a wrestling promotion. He's trying to do a, a big match promotion when he should be doing a promotion that 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 thrives more on continuity and angles and programs and you know things that bring talent up and down the card he's got an awful lot of people on the payroll and because of that they're not really focusing very well on the ones that they get over i mean you know wardlow was hot and then then he kind of disappeared uh miro was hot and he disappeared you know, it, it, there's a lot of things in that company that are, there's a lot of great talent there, no question about it. Oh, that would but it's the way that they're being used or not used, as the case may be. And it, I think it's just a matter of they got too many people and not enough focus and, and not enough angles and stories and programs that make people care about who's wrestling who and why. I mean, dream, dream matches are great. Yes. But you know, the, the problem with that is that, there, well, where do you go from there? And, and there's no going from it. The, these things just seem to pop up out of nowhere and then they disappear. And, and that's not how pro wrestling is most effective. It's most effective when you're telling stories and it's most effective when you're, you're you know, bringing things from point A to point B. And, and Tony just isn't doing a very good job of doing that. And, and that's too bad because he's got the horses. He just needs to get them in line and, and point them in the direction that they need to go. Right. Um, well, I think the big controversy that last week, and I remember talking with some friends about this, um, and my, my friends are very WWE centric. It's just the fact that, you know, we're all at a certain age of late thirties, early forties, where it's like, you know, we don't have a lot of time and AEW kind of, doesn't fill the gaps that WWE does WWE. There's always like this production before a match that, Mm -hmm. and people, you know, hardcore fans don't like it because they're just like, they treat us like we're, we're not watching every week. And it's just like, well, they need to fill you in because they need to be able to sell a PLE and sell a pay-per-view by saying, look it, you might not be watching every week, but here's five minutes to tell you why these guys are fighting. And I believe that AEW doesn't do that because I've been criticized by their own fan base because I'll be like, who is this guy? And they'll be like, well, obviously you don't watch new Japan. It's like, I don't have time. I know who Okada yeah. is. 
I know who um, the big players are, but at the same time, it's just like, I have a life. I have a fiance. I have a job 40 hours a week. And I don't have all this time to kind of sit there and go over all these guys and just being like, oh, that's where he's from. And the frustrating part last week was when they announced on Wednesday that they were going to have MJF face Kenny Omega on Saturday night at Collision. And I was like, why is there no buildup for this? Like, you have two pay-per-views in the, you have two pay-per-views coming up. November spoken for. Then push it Mm -hmm. off to December. Just push it off to December because you're not losing anything by this except the fact of that you're going up against the NBA, the World Series, and college football on a Saturday night to try to pop Mm -hmm. a number with guys who, let's face it, the the thing about AEW is, and what the way they bring people in, like some somebody said to me last week, they're like, Well, people are gonna watch, but uh, because they got Okada in, in a tag match. I'm like, they're not going to watch because everybody who knows who Okada is are already watching AEW. Yeah. And it's a sad state of affairs. I, I get that because Okada, I, in my opinion, might be one of the best generate talents of this generation. And a lot of the mainstream wrestling fans do not know who he is, and they know who guys like, you know, and I hate to throw Baron Corbin under the bus. But mm-hmm. they know who Baron Corbin is, but they don't know who Kazuki Okada is or Will Ospreay. And right, it, right, it's right. it's unfortunate because you see these talents and they are exceptional, exceptional. Mm-hmm. But the mainstream audience, it's just they don't have the time or the energy to be able to watch New Japan or subscribe to New Japan World or anything like that to get caught up on this stuff. And AEW isn't doing enough to introduce you to those people and make you care about who they are and, and why they're there. Now, it's it, it, Tony Khan does a lot of fantasy booking, and unfortunately, fantasy booking is not as good as pro wrestling booking. Correct. And that's what Tony Khan is not good at, and he needs to find people who are good at it. Um, but you know what can I say? It, it, it's his world. It's his money. And he can do with it whatever he wants. And that's what he's doing. He's, he, you know, I, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but he's Richie Rich. You know, he's saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to play with this toy or play with that toy. And what if these toys got together and all that? And, and that's not pro wrestling booking. That, that's not going to yield results in the long term. And we're seeing that bear itself out right now. They, four years ago, they were one of the, they were hot. They were white hot. And I, yeah. I think that might have been because of the the new toy, the new car smell type deal. Um, but they also had long-term, great long-term storytelling, mm-hmm. where I feel like now it's week-to-week booking. And that can be problematic because you end up hot-shotting, which last Saturday, in my opinion, that was a clear example of hot-shotting. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's going to get you in the short term, sure. It might raise the mm-hmm. gate up for... <laughs> mohegan sun for the people that come to the show but it really didn't it didn't make a dent and that's the unfortunate part because you have two exceptional talents kenny omega and mjf challenging Mm -hmm. fighting for the world championship your top top prize and no one cared and that's that that is the hard part about it is because it's not the talent's fault it's how things are put together it's a sad statement a very sad statement um, and it's it, it's frustrating, you know. Anybody it really that's promoted is. wrestling 
Satan says, boy, if I had a fraction of that money, if I had 5% of that money, the things that I could do. And, uh, you know, but we don't. So there you go. Well, it's got to be frustrating for, from your standpoint because you ran a successful company for so many years, you know, on and, nothing, on nothing, and on nothing, and he's on 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 scotch tape and 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 paper clips and uh, couldn't even afford duct tape, shoelaces, and tape. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So, um, it, you know, you ran and it was successful. I mean, people kept coming. It was people, mm-hmm. you know, people kept tuning in. People were buying the DVDs. And I, I think with them, it's just like, it's frustrating because I, yeah. I try to think I want to be a booker. Like I, I know it's, I, I want to be a booker and I th- sometimes always think with a booking mentality, but yet at the same time, I just sit there and I'm just like, you have all this money and mm. you're doing things. And I know what he's trying to do. I know there's a part of him that's trying to at least, um, be able to pop a number and also he all he wants to do is try to also be recognized by wwe you're not going to get a pat in the back bud you're not they're let, not going to let me let me let me interject something right here because you brought something up that i think bear is commenting on you talked about wanting to be a booker yeah all right first of all anybody who is a booker is somebody who should have experience in pro wrestling doesn't always have to be in the ring, but you've got to have experience right. working with talent. You've got to have experience working in a promotion. And it's much more than just putting matches together. You're responsible for the financial outcome of the company. You've, you've got to have some idea of what the economics are. You've got to have the ability to work with guys who, who may or may not want to work with each other, who, who you need to leave yourself open to the talent's ideas and be able to work with that and shape a product that that's good, that's going to get you a good result. And I always went, I didn't book any CW until over 10 years in, you know, I had bookers before that. And then, then I just said, you know, shit, I'm going to do this myself. Right. You know, I, I, I'm at the point now I had a bad experience with somebody that I had worked with for a long time. And it was just so bad that I just said to myself, um, I'm taking the reins here. And, uh, you know, I, I had good help and, uh, you know, it worked out, but, you know, you, you, being a booker is a hard job and it's not a job for somebody who's not experienced in the, in the wrestling industry. That's why Tony Khan has such trouble because he doesn't have that wrestling industry experience. I was in the, the business in the late, the mid to late two thousands. Um, I worked for, mm-hmm. a prom- I actually, <laughs> I uh, I reached out to you on MySpace. This is how long ago it was. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and I reached out. You to take you out my dentures and no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I reached out. I reached out to you on um, on MySpace one time because I was working for a promotion here in Worcester County. Because I'm we're we're both mass holes, uh, <laughs> and I work for a promotion out here in Worcester County, Powerhouse Wrestling. I'm not going to name the promoter. All right. But you told me. You said stay away stay away you're going to get bad habits you know and you invited me to come down and work for you uh and i came in for a show and i i think i helped on the production side of things and it just at the time because i again i was taking a tea back and forth to come and it just with my personal life the what stuff that was going on at the time i just didn't have it and um 
I had to step away for a bit. And then I went to Hartford for a few years, but you know, I always wanted at least to kind of just, and I was always somebody that just, I'll just sit and listen and watch. I'll keep my mouth shut. I just want to be able to learn, be under the tree mm, mm, and mm. at least pick up from there on little habits that people might do and little things that, because from you, I always, going back to the A&E documentary, you know, I was still a teenager when that came out. And I remember looking at it and saying, when I found out that you were a historian, I was just like, wow, they have a wrestling historian. Is this a line of work I can get into? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it gave me some hope because I was in deep and I'm still in deep. Like I keep thinking of my, and I keep thinking of myself at some point, you know, maybe this kid games can, I can put it away, but I'm, I just hit 40 and it ain't, it's not going to like, I'm too old to get in anything else. Like it's just, I've mm-hmm, hit that mm-hmm, point mm-hmm. of like, what am I else going to do for other hobbies? You know, it's like in this, I've been, and uh, my thing was, is that I always wanted to pick your brain because you were talked about, you know, the George Hackenschmidt and the Frank Gotches to the current product now. Mm-hmm. And it was always something I always wanted to learn who I felt like guys who from a master type deal. So having you on this okay. program, number one, fulfills a lot of things because it's like, how do you go from being a playwright to the world of pro wrestling? Like that, that to me, when I, I, cause I read that today, I was like, I didn't know you like a playwright to pro wrestling. Uh, that is something that completely different ends of the spectrum almost. Uh, it's kind of a long story. I'll give you the short version of it. When I was involved in the theater industry, I, I met a guy by the name of Joe Perkins. Now, I had been a wrestling fan before this, but this guy, Joe Perkins, had an ad agency. And he had a sideline in addition to, to the advertising. And that was he, he placed the Worldwide Wrestling Federation television shows in syndication, originally for Vince McMahon Sr. And then he carried on with his son. Junior. He ended up being a a very critical part of the national expansion of of WWF uh, because he was the one that was going into a lot of these different markets where, you know, uh, the regional territory had a strong TV and he would go get a time slot, either their time slot or a time slot on a competing station. And, uh, you know, he was a big part of that national expansion. So I knew him. And I also knew Abe Ford, who was the former uh, Boston promoter for Vince McMahon Sr. until they had a falling out and there was a lawsuit, which Abe Ford won. And uh, Vince McMahon had to pay him off in order to, uh, he wanted to sell the territory. He didn't like the split of, of dollars. Mm. And so Abe Ford promoted the Boston Garden. I think he promoted some of the, the New Hampshire shows like uh, the, the JFK Coliseum in Manchester. And uh, uh, there was a building in Nashua that they used to run. And, you know, just a, a few of those venues. He didn't have Providence. Providence was somebody else. 
Providence was the Witchy Brothers, who also ran Jack Witchy Sports Arena in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, which was one of the only buildings in the whole territory that ran every week. They ran every Friday night in North Attleboro for years up until about 1982, maybe, or 83, when wow. uh, the building burned down. Yeah. <laughs> Rumor has it that the, it was struck by Jewish lightning, but that's another story for another oh, day. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I knew those guys, and I, I knew, you know, Abe Ford really didn't like to talk about wrestling after the falling out with Vince Sr. Right. Uh, but he won his lawsuit. He wanted to sell the, the territory to uh, the, the uh, Montreal promoters and uh, bring Grand Prix wrestling into the Boston area. But uh, the Vachon brothers tipped off Vince Sr. and v Vince Sr. cut it off and said, well, wait a minute. It's my wrestling that you're putting on there. You don't have any wrestling. You're, you're just you're buying what I you're, you're, you're promoting what I give you. And there was a big lawsuit and Ford won the lawsuit and Vince had to pay him off. So a lot of people don't know that little bit of history, but, uh, this is why, yeah. I'm on, so, cause I want to hear all yeah, the nuggets yeah, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To me, it's like, I'm I mean, just it, sitting here and I'm like, yes, tell me more. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah. So, uh, uh, after, after that episode, it was, uh, Ernie Roth and Bobby Harmon, who were the promoters for Boston. Ernie Roth, of course, was the Grand Wizard. Right. And Bobby Harmon wrestled as beautiful Bobby in the 70s. So uh, they were the low, they were the Boston promoters after Abe Ford. Until they stopped using, well, they have local promoters now, but it's a little bit of a, a different scenario than, than it was back in the day. So... Uh, if you're going to ask a question. I can. The wheels are turning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no worries. It, it's um. Now, so when did you start like kind of hanging around like the industry? Like, uh, I, I'm assuming you probably had contacts with probably Walter Kowalski, um, maybe yeah, a few others yeah. around locally. Yeah. Well, what ended up happening is. I, I, I was producing plays and the industry was changing and the economics of the industry were changing. And so I had to find something else to do with myself because it wasn't working out. Right. I mean, I had some successes, but it was getting harder and harder to raise the money to produce anything. And I was spending more time raising money than actually doing any real producing. So I didn't want to do that anymore. So I started doing a newsletter for collectors of wrestling memorabilia, something unique in the industry at that time. And I kind of rekindled a lot of contacts from when I had pen pals, when uh, I was trading programs and eight by tens and magazines and stuff like that as a kid. And uh, with a, a, a newfound exposure to show business, I kind of transferred some of those skills over to uh, an interest in pro wrestling. And uh, uh, I started hanging around Kowalski shows and, and selling merchandise at those shows and developing merchandise for Walter. And then uh, I met a guy 
at a wrestling convention in New York that was put on by John Arezzi. Oh, I know. And that yeah. guy was John. Right. That guy was the late great Boston bad boy Tony Rumble. Yes. So we met in 1990 at this at this uh, convention in New York, and turns out that that we uh, had grown up less than a mile from each other and had never met until that moment. And oh, here wow. he was, uh, a wrestler, manager, commentator, and all that stuff. And we became fast friends. And then I started doing stuff with him. And uh, I went from uh, just showing up and selling merchandise to uh, doing the website, doing the tickets, doing the posters, doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, after he passed away in November of 99, that's when I started New England Championship Wrestling and became a promoter. So he kind of learned, kind of learned from him a little bit on a lot yeah the progression tony was extremely street smart right uh he was experienced as, as a booker he was experienced as a promoter he understood a lot of things and i learned a, a ton of things from him and I, I i miss him every single day to this day and uh you know he's gone 20 years now so um, yeah, that's i remember it, when he i remember when he passed i remember that was and that made national news like that at least in the wrestling business that that made yeah. i remember mm-hmm. seeing that on pro wrestling mm-hmm. illustrated and things like that the newsletters at the time yeah because uh, internet was at its infancy as far as wrestling was concerned and that was that was one of the early kind of stories yeah. i remember mm-hmm. um i do remember watching him i think it was iccw if i'm yeah yeah and i he was a part of that um and i remember because any time back then i was just wanting to watch anything i could so it was like i mm-hmm. was watching every promotion i could back then and you know some of it good some of it yeah uh you know especially the mid 90s because wwe at that point was like oh god (laughs) Mm -hmm. it was hard it was hard for a couple of years in the main for the mainstream wrestling business in the 90s yeah yeah Mm -hmm. because of the steroid issues and then the the ring boy scandal everything that kind of went on Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm because nothing was happening and you felt like the creatively and the talent also wasn't there um, right you know I, the joke i always made i said ecw was the best promotion in 1995 like <laughs> mm. like as far mm. as the main as far as like the the mainstream companies at that point um but it was so different for its time you know it was yeah. kind of like a a, a a a shock to the system quite literally have you uh you know, have they you- have you tried have you met paul i'm sorry to cut you off oh yeah yeah and i was a little bit involved with ecw at one point i was the one that brought the michinoku guys in for oh, the, the barely legal pay-per-view yeah yeah i i arranged all that were you at that show i sure was yeah wow oh. <laughs> mm. i think that's the one show in my lifetime it's like if i could go back i want to go to that one because like the environment that may have been the best crowd I've ever seen for a wrestling show. Yeah. Yeah. It was an amazing crowd. And, and then, uh, and I, I actually went, went <laughs> yeah, actually went from there. Uh, the next day I brought the great Suzuki and his, uh, assistant up to Stanford to meet with Jim Ross and Bruce Pritchard. And that's how, Kai and Tai came into WWE and how uh, Suzuki came in to uh, do a couple of shots for them. And he, he could have had a, a very substantial deal, but he kind of blew it. Um, 
by you know thinking that he was going to be the first light heavyweight champion and all this other stuff and you know his attitude um they 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 sent i think undertaker and a couple of other people over to japan to do a show for him but uh you know that that was an interesting time because wwe was really kind of on its ass at the time and so they were looking for any advantage to to you know compete with wcw and uh Sasuke could have made his own deal with wcw but he wanted to be in with wwf at the time because uh it, it would have put him in a unique position but he kind of talked his way both into it and out of it at the same time so uh and i was in the middle of all that so that interesting had, times that had to have been frustrating because it's like i'm trying to broker this and you yeah. know it's just another talent just I because I remember that '97 was a weird year for that company because they tried yeah. so many different things. I remember the ECW mm-hmm. invasion. Uh, they brought Sasuke in, and that was for a kind of he was in for kind of like a cup of coffee. Uh, I think it was the Canadian Stampede match. The Canadian yeah. Stampede show was where where he wrestled Taka. Um, and then they had the light heavyweight division, kind of going. They started, I think, at the end of the year. But then I remember they had NWA on, Carluzzo was on, right. Cornette. Um, and right. it's just, there was just so many things kind of happening, so many moving parts that year, because I think they were just right. trying to, mm-hmm. they were really just trying to figure out how to beat WCW, because at that point, they, they were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. Did you think, uh, <laughs> we're talking, We I mentioned ECW. Um, mm-hmm. Were you, uh, were you there or were you somehow indirectly involved with the mass transit incident in 1996? I was there that night. That's the night that I brought uh, the, uh, the uh, guy from Michinoku in and to meet Paul Heyman and Paul invited uh, them to send a match for their first pay-per-view. So that I was there that night. Yeah. I wasn't uh, involved in it, but I was there. <laughs> I saw uh, it all go down that um it's been talked about quite a bit but that that has been one of those incidences it's kind of like there's one side then there's another side um i always am kind of like well he lied you know he said that he was this age when he wasn't Mm -hmm. and that ultimately i think is kind of what saved the company and also new jack from doing time because yeah, just that little aspect of him saying that oh that he's 20 21 and then he was actually 17 um, right 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 mm-hmm. that almost derailed them completely because they had the the pay-per-view booked and made and then all of a sudden after that they were just like no we can't have this uh i i think they were in probably a little less trouble than what you describe i think that yeah that was a little bit on the scene but i think that that wasn't going to be a big factor in terms of the final result so i mean i think the people involved looked at it as a nuisance kind of a thing a nuisance lawsuit they didn't they didn't look at it as a serious challenge to the health or well-being of, of ecw at the time um have you met uh junior at all yep okay a couple of times how's that um interaction gone very charming guy very bright guy very brilliant guy uh 
you know, um, we weren't doing any business together, but <laughs> he was just charming. You know, I dropped a name or two and we had a, we had a nice chat and, uh, that was about it. Um, are you surprised that they sold the company to TKO? No, no. It was time to go. You know, yeah. he, he's, he's, you know, he's what? 78, or, I think. Yeah. 78. All yeah. right. Well, you know, hey, you know, it comes time that you got to start dancing toward the exit. And this is the time. I think it was hard because in the last five, six years or so, and it's tough to get it, you know, it's kind of like the same thing with the Patriots right now with the Bill Belichick. It's just like, is now the time? And hmm. you wondered five or six years ago with Vince if maybe him in a creative spot that he was in, if maybe now was the time, because there were some baffling decisions being made where you're just sitting there and you're like, uh, you're supposed to be the Walt Disney of this thing. Like you literally created all this. Yeah, I don't understand yeah. why yeah. these decisions are being made. Well, you know, it, it happens a lot in, in any creative endeavor. Some, who's really creative and really you know really on the ball with things you know they they, they lose their way and uh it, it's not always uh it can be age it can be just losing touch um you know it it, it happens it happens in, in in other forms of entertainment too the great brilliant movie director who you know they gets to a certain point where he's just trying to knock off the past and it, it doesn't work anymore and uh, he's got to find himself again creatively if he if he still can. So so that, that that's not something that, that's exclusive to wrestling. It's happened in other media as well. No, without question, I think Disney is mm -hmm. facing that issue right now, and they have mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. more money and a lot more people behind them, and they're just right. trying to they're just in a creative funk where they're just like we got to try to pull the plane up and we're right going down more. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. What got who? Who was the um, the main reason you got into wrestling? Like as as a fan, like uh, talent wise, or just somebody? Bruno, Bru uh, of course, Bruno. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you'd you'd have to live through the era that he was champion. You got to live through his heyday to really get it. I I don't think people really get it today who weren't part of that generation because they don't understand like how big a star he was, how important he was. Like uh, the old saying is that if you went to the North End and you went into an Italian person's home, there'd be three pictures on the wall, the Pope, Jesus Christ, and Bruno San Martino. <laughs> That's how much he meant to people. Because he was the Charles Atlas story come to life, the 98-pound weakling who came – you know, to America from Italy after the after World War II and uh, uh, how um, he built himself up into being legitimately one of the strongest men in the world. And, you know, that, that classic picture of him standing like a bear, you know, with a championship belt, that was, that screamed world heavyweight champion. That was it. You looked at that guy, that's the world heavyweight champion. That's it right there. That's the guy. And, and immigrants, it's Italian immigrants, Latin immigrants, anybody who was a, a first-generation American 
looked at that guy and just saw, you know, the, the, the hope of, of, of immigrants coming to America and realizing the American dream. That's what Bruno represented. And, and it's hard for people that didn't experience that to understand the, the, the depth of the bond that he had with his fans. Now, it was truly something extraordinary. It'll never happen again. No, not well, in our lifetimes anyway. No, yeah. no I, I don't think that he yeah. was, I mean, he was a mm. cultural icon on more than, probably more than anybody as a wrestling, right. as a wrestler, right. because, mm-hmm. you know, there are pictures with him. He's with Frank Sinatra. He's with, um, you know, Phil Esposito, all these like main, mm-hmm. Sh- mm-hmm. you know, he's mm-hmm. doing things with, I yeah. mean, Schwarzenegger inducted him to the Hall of Fame. Like it, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how much of an impact he had. His backstory sure. is truly incredible. Uh, the mm-hmm, fact that he mm-hmm, pretty mm-hmm. like his mother um, was going back and forth to up the mountain, up yeah, the mountain, bring food, yeah. like yeah, it was it's re- like it is one of those stories of this is the American dream right here. This mm-hmm, guy mm-hmm. is the American dream. He is the epitome, absolutely, of because he came from the worst possible position, and now he is at the cream of the crop. He's the number one yeah. draw in the Northeast, but more importantly, the most important mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. In all of professional wrestling in Madison Square Garden, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of course, the old Boston Garden too. I mean, that has to be right. <laughs> that has to be stated. How many if shows? You, did... If you walk through the North End on the night that wrestling was in the Garden, it would be empty. Okay, because they'd all be at the Garden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that, but what you also said, said stated that's why larry zabisco probably went through the hell that he did in the early 80s mm, after that mm. feud because i've heard the horror stories of just like death threats um oh yeah with like even with like because bruno's italian you go to new york don't go to mm. Little italy tonight you know those little yeah, stories right right like, right and mm. the the famous story about shea stadium the the cage match mm-hmm. uh if because there was a discussion that Larry was going to win, but they were mm. afraid that Larry might not have made it back to the like the dugout right, or right, the locker right. room with Shay because mm. you know something nefarious yeah. could have happened. Um, right. Are these stories true that when Larry turned on him, that people had like heart attacks and almost in, in oh died? yeah, oh yeah, absolutely sure those things are true. Yeah, because you I mean, hear it in folklore. People lived and died with Bruno. I mean, they're they're just when he lost the title, the shock. Oh, the the building went silent. Yeah, when yeah. when Island Koloff beat him in uh, in seven yeah. one. Have you mm. seen the match with him and Pedro at Shea Stadium? Like, have you seen a tape no. of that at all? I because that's no, to there be is like, no tape of it. That's that's a shame because that's that's it one is of those a shame. Because that's one of those matches. It's just like I've always wanted to see, like just because mm, it's seventy-five yeah, yeah, minutes. Yeah. And yeah. To their fate, it's like brutally cold out. It was like fall night, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. was just always one match that I wanted to see because it was just like you wanted to see probably the two really top ethnic baby faces that they had at the time. Right. Seventy-five right. minutes, which is unheard of now. Like, yeah, yeah. I hear yeah, someone go yeah. sixty minutes. I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. 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 But, you know, Senior was very much against that match. He only did it because Bruno insisted. See, Bruno felt that 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 wrestling should be presented more like it's a real competition. Right. 
And why can't a baby face face another baby face if he's the top guy, the top contender? Why, 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 why couldn't that happen? He's right. You know, I mean, yeah. he's a thousand and, percent and, right. And, yeah. And it should happen sometimes, you know, right. but uh, Bruno, when it came to booking himself and his feuds and his matches, he was brilliant. He really was brilliant. And, and he brought a lot of guys into the business that uh, like, uh, uh, Toro Tanaka and uh, Bobby Duncan. Stan Hansen. He, he, yeah, Hansen, right? Exactly. I mean, he he would see a guy someplace like Japan or whatever and say, "I could, I could do something with this guy and bring him to seniors' attention." So, no. the Hansen thing, what made him, which is so fantastic of the fact, because I guess it was a body slam that broke his neck. It was yeah. hilarious, but they sold it like it was the lariat and i feel Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. i feel like stan was able to build his entire legacy and career off the fact of that he broke bruno's neck with the lariat like yeah but stan yeah stan stan wrestled most of his career in japan though big matches yes yeah 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 no he 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 most of his career was japan right after that point you know well, he was AWA champion in, I think, um, 85. Yeah, but, but he was still going back and forth right. to Japan. Yeah. I, I still love the story that he, when he sent the belt back, he took, he, he ran over it with his tractor, I guess. His, <laughs> yeah, right. He ran over with his truck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That also may have been the, the kind of beginning of when people may have thought that Vern was kind of losing it because he knew that you had to have known that Vern, that Stan was going to go to Japan and make more money there because he was making. I've heard he was making like more than some of the NFL guys were in the eighties in a year. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Very true. You got to remember that you know, in the the sixties and seventies, pro wrestlers made much more money than NFL players. Right. Yeah, you know, that was just it was just the economic of economics of, of pro sports at the time. You know? Um well yeah, because I, I that was also before like Major League Baseball Union. I mean, they didn't get yeah. free agency until probably I think 76, 77 around that area. Right. And it was after that that the economics started to change. Well, that too, and then the owners kind of screwed them in the eighties because they were in collusion. Right. And then they mm-hmm. had that's what led to the 94 strike. Um right. it it's it's hard because you think that but I've I've talked to um I heard CM Punk over the weekend and he was talking about how the fact of that he wants a wrestling unionization, but he knows it's not possible. Because yeah. and I, I think that if as a promoter, it it you the last thing you also want is well, I don't know, because it, it's kind of a one of those things to kind of touch on where you're like, it would have been harder to do business if there was a union. But at the same time, I think if you're thinking about it from the talent's perspective, them having a union would probably benefit them because of the mm. fact that, you know, pay and also health insurance and all that stuff. Right, right. But it's a fine line, I'm sure, as a promoter, because you're just like, mm, the cost then would go up. Yeah, it would it would take some people out of the business altogether, and it would would create less of a an ability to create an entry point. 
you know, as independent wrestling is today, um, you know, I, I believe that you treat people fairly, talent especially, because they're the business, you know. Nobody buys a ticket to see a promoter. But, um, you know, it's it, it's it's a hard thing. I think that, that a union might be good in terms of working conditions and so forth, but, you know, you, you can't dictate the creative side of it through unionization. You can dictate other things, but not that. But so. Um, so again, something we're not going to see in our lifetime. Probably not, unfortunately. Because yeah. yeah. there are, because I do want talent to kind of get a lot of the benefits that a lot of mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. athletic organizations get and Screen Actors Guild get just because of the fact that they've earned that right. And, right. you know, they're putting their bodies on the line. But I can also understand it from a promoter side of things of just like, yeah, then that prices me out. Like, but you know what? They're, they're, they, there's a lot of things that the promotions do now, like WWE does. They have financial literacy. Right. They have, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they will cover injuries to a certain degree. Um, you know, it's, it's not like the old days where, oh, you can't work well. See you around, kid. You're yeah. on your own. It's not that anymore at all. So, uh, so there has been progress made. There may not be a union, but there has been progress made because you want to protect your talent, which is your greatest asset. Everything else is just what do you got? A ring, an office, some chairs, a you know, a few tables, a few desks, file cabinets. That's it. You, you don't. Your 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 key asset is talent, and and that's a a. a a difficult asset to quantify. Do you think, and it's, it's almost unfortunate that WWE with the wellness policy and, you know, them paying for injuries, mm-hmm. that is because of a, more of a, a, the effect of what happened in the nineties and the two thousands with a lot of premature deaths. Right. Um, where, and I'll be the first to admit it in 2007 after the Benoit incident, mm-hmm. I thought the industry was going to die at a certain point because I never thought it was going to die, but I knew there, there were going to be major changes afoot. When you have every, you know, Fox, when you have every news network talking about it, when you have, you know, Congress kicking the tires a little bit, you know, there was, I, I think something kind of a reform that needed to get done because you're just sitting there and you're like, mm-hmm. why is this happening? How could this happen? Um, you know, the, the barbaric state of the industry was they didn't understand about it. And I'm not throwing the book at WWE completely because the NFL had the right. same issues with concussions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the fact that we didn't have the knowledge and the, the information that we do now. But Benoit was an isolated incident. Correct. Indicative of something else, but an isolated incident. So you can't say it was an epidemic of, you know, people killing their families because there wasn't. It was one person who, you know, obviously was suffering from some degree of mental illness and whether it was brought on by CTE or, or, or another source, which we'll never know, you know, that that's another issue, but, Again, it was an isolated incident, but at the same time, 
the companies had to look at this and say, okay, what, what are we going to learn from this? What do we, what do we have to do to keep law enforcement and the feds off of our backs? Is right. this really an isolated incident and what can we do to prevent such things in the future? And, and it's a very different industry today. It's a, you know, drug wise, it's a lot cleaner. You know, there, there's a lot less drugs in the business now than there was in the eighties and nineties. Um, so, you know, lessons were definitely learned. A lot of guys now are clean living. I mean, they don't, yeah. they don't do anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of them, I think their addiction is almost like video games, but that's pretty much it. Mm. Right, um, right, right. I mean, pot's legal now. So it's like, it's one of the, it, it's certain states, it's mm-hmm. they said, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. also the, um, for, as far as pain management is concerned, because that was the big thing. I've heard Bret Hart talk about it too, where he's just like, you know, if they just legalized pot and let us smoke that instead of testing us, there probably would have been less deaths because they wouldn't have to take a Vicodin. They wouldn't have to take an Oxycontin. They right, right, right. Do, mm-hmm. You know, stuff that w- or either was on prescription, quote unquote, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. stuff that mm-hmm. was going to be out of your system within a couple of days. Yeah. Um, which he's right on that end. Uh, mm-hmm. Is, do you find it more... This is, a, this is a tough question because we've you've been around and I'm not calling aging you, so don't think that. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, I readily admit to my age. I'm 67. I've been around for a long time. So I'm, I, I have no issue with being called out on my age. <laughs> um, so you've it's seen... a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you there. Like I, I hit yeah. 40 this year and I'm like, eh, this ain't so bad. Uh, you know, it, I always say it's like your 30s sometimes you're better than your 20s because your 20s it's like a lot of times you just make a lot of mistakes, and then your 30s is like okay, you learn yeah. from those, so it's just gonna be better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you've seen a lot in the industry, you've seen mm-hmm. you know, you've gone from Bruno and then you went from the Hulkamania era, uh, mm-hmm. to kind of the a little bit of a downside and then the Monday night wars and then, you know, WWE's complete monopoly mm-hmm. for a good 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years, as far as major promotions are concerned. Uh, we're in the last five years of things that things have kicked up because, and all this stuff and with all these promotions getting TV deals. Um, where do you think the industry is going to go in the next five to 10 years? That's where I think it should go. Uh, it should become more regionalized and not, you know, a lot of these companies are trying to be national entities. And the problem with that is that there, there's very few television situations that you can get into that will sustain you on a national level. I think trying to create effective regional circuits with money behind them would be much more effective than trying to run the whole country. But that's just me talking. And, 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 you know, I, I, I made a play to uh, get my own venue and try to build up to that, but I just couldn't put the money together. I mean, I, I would go to people and, and explain this to them and they'd look at me like I had nine heads, <laughs> you know, you want to do what? <laughs> and you need how much? So you know, yeah. it is what it is, but uh, I think the regional idea 
is something that's definitely needed just because of the fact it's like mm-hmm. local promotions you know it, it just kind of stick between and it's not regional like it was in the you know in the 70s and the 60s where it's like you can't cross these lines it's more or less just mm-hmm. getting a local tv getting a low you know it's it, getting local tv getting a local local buildings and trying to just create a buzz and trying to create something that kind of right. people can go to every week if you're running a weekly mm-hmm, promotion mm-hmm, or if mm-hmm. you're running a monthly right. promotion for that matter um yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think that the, the business is kind of needed for that because then all of a sudden you can go back these guys they can work new england for a few months then they can go down to Southwest. They can do whatever they want. It gives the right, other right, promotions. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they could be a belt collectors if they wanted to, where they're working 15 promotions at once. And just come mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. with every title possible. Um, yeah. Do you like, are you a fan of that? Where it's like, like when Kenny Omega did a few years ago, when he was the AEW champion, the impact champion, the TNA champion. And then the, I mean, it's a cool visual, but then you got to keep all these promoters happy. So that's yeah. that's the problem there where you're like, uh mm-hmm. um but if- those guys those guys weren't regional. They're all, all all essentially, with the exception of AAA, they're all, all trying to occupy the same space. And that that doesn't really, you know. Yeah, it's a little bit of cooperation and something different and all that, but but it, it it's not going to sustain it's itself. not gonna work in the long run, you know. Um, if you were, cause my thing is like with, I hated, I, one thing I don't like is when you have a guy that you're paying a lot of money, like in the mm-hmm. seven figures and he's your top star. And then he's working death matches on the weekends. Yeah. That's no good. <laughs> yeah. No good. No. It's like all of a sudden you're getting, you're getting texts on Sunday night of like they're wrestling, the guy's wrestling in barbed wire. You're like, I'm paying him this much money. Why can't he just now work on the weekends? Like, why is he going through tables? They're on fire. I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, it's funny. When you read my book, my novel, I, I kind of rebooked the history of the wrestling business from 1971 through 1999. Nice. And I, like I, I think for people who are really wrestling fans, you don't need to be a wrestling fan to appreciate the book. It's just the story of a wrestler. Right. And his journey. But underneath that, the story is told against the backdrop of a changing industry. And uh, it, it's complete fiction but it, it's a retelling of the, you know, the the, the rise of, of of the changing media landscape, and I think that that people who are into wrestling are going to look at that and they go, oh wow, that's how you could have done it, that's how they could have done it, and it would have worked. So I, I'm 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 curious to get people's thoughts about that when they actually get to read the book. So so far, everyone who's read this book has loved it. So I, um, um, I'm looking. I'm gonna pick it up, like without question. I'm I'm really uh, interested in just that thought process of rebooking everything from '71 to '99. I'm in, mm-hmm. like, because that's how my brain has always kind of 
worked. It's like, okay, um, perfect example. World-class wrestling, world-class championship wrestling. You know, if David Von Erich didn't die in 84, what would have happened? Would they have been right. mm-hmm. as strong as WWF was in the 80s because they were doing better numbers at certain points? Mm-hmm. They had better syndication. They mm-hmm. had um, th- that whole story is just absolute yeah. tragic. It's yeah. almost like something out of Greek mythology. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, and it's the, the Iron Claw movie looks fascinating as well. Um, mm, mm. and it's also going to bring back, I think, a lot of memories for a lot of people too, because who lived through that? Because, right. and I've seen the documentaries, the Heroes of World Class, mm. and then the, the WWF one that they did, or WWE one they did. Mm, 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 but, um, mm. if, if it wasn't Vince McMahon in the 80s that took the company national, would somebody else have done it, or would the, or do you think the territory system probably would have? still been in existence no somebody would have done it somebody would have done it yeah it, it, it was inevitable it, it had to happen you know just because of the way the media and the world was changing right it, it was going to happen one way or another fritz wouldn't have done it because fritz was a died in the wool territory guy right yes he did tours but he worked with local people and he didn't he wasn't trying to he wasn't trying to run the whole country he would. He was just trying to run his territory and maybe do a tour and get his boys out to where the syndication was and do a random show here and there. But he wasn't looking to run those places on a regular basis. That was not what he was trying to do. So Fritz wouldn't have done it. Uh, there was talk that Sam Munchnik wanted to try to do it with the NWA. Um, mm, how that would have worked, I'm not 100% sure, but... You know, Sam might have been able to put something together that that you know was would have been interesting and preserved the territory system. Uh, Joe, Joe, Blanchard, have, Joe Blanchard technically had USA before WWF did. That's right, right. But Joe Joe wasn't very bright about promoting, and uh, uh, they uh, they ended up uh, defaulting on the deal, and that's why they lost it. They just defaulted on the money. No, um, you're saying Crockett. Sorry uh, to cut you off. Crockett, yeah, you know Crockett. I mean, he he sort of elevated the whole deal because of Vince and all that. But but you know Crockett certainly certainly could have done it or at least expanded his territory. No, he he didn't have to run the whole country. He could have just you know taken his the places where he was really strong and. I mean, Flair says to this day that if Crockett had just stayed to the places that he was strong, he never would have gone out of business. Between Baltimore and Chicago, that's where that's where he said he's like, if they stayed between in between Baltimore and Chicago, yeah. they probably would have mm-hmm. made it. Right, 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 right. Um, Again, if you when you read the Last Fall, that that it sort of is a fictional retelling of all of that that I I think you'll find interesting and. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of things in the book are, are based on things that actually happened, but they've been fictionalized. Right. So. And the names have changed go. for reasons. <laughs> right. 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 But well, I, I wanted to tell a fictional story. I wasn't trying to say, oh, well, this is really, I mean, yeah, there, there, there's things in the book. Is, oh, that's so-and-so, or this is so-and-so. 
but a lot of it is just fictionalized. They're just, you know, based on on real events, but they're completely fictionalized, and 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 you can't say that, oh, this is Jim Crockett, or this is this guy, or this is that that guy. They're just different different entities and characters all together. And I think that it was the fun of storytelling. You know, it's the fun of coming up with a, a plot and characters that that uh, would intrigue people. When did you decide to write the novel? Ah, uh, well, let me back up a little bit to tell you that. Okay. To put it all in context. Thirteen months ago, I was on an airplane coming home from Las Vegas from the Cauliflower Alley Club reunion, back home to Boston from Las Vegas, and I had been feeling kind of sluggish and I was having trouble getting to the. When I got to the airport, I was having trouble getting to ticketing into the gate i needed to be wheeled to both places right and i i get on the plane and i think okay i'm, I'm all right now i'll i'll be okay once i get home i'll get everything figured out and i'll i'll, I'll be fine but two-thirds of the way through the flight i got up to go to the bathroom and i came out and i nearly passed out so they got me back into my seat they gave me aspirin they gave me a nitroglycerin pill because they thought i was having a heart attack and they rushed me to Mass General. And what was happening is I was having experiencing kidney failure. So here I am laying in Mass General. And I was there for about a month. And I'm saying to myself, I, I can't go out like this. I, 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 I can't. This can't be it. I can't. Right. I, I can't go out like this. And so I ended up on dialysis, which I am on now. I'm, I'm awaiting a kidney transplant. And I just said to myself, your, your, your lifestyle's changing and you're not going to be able to do the, some of the things that you really want to do, but you can do something. You can do things. You just have to figure out what those things are and do them. <clears throat> so I came up with the idea of wanting to write a novel because something I already want and always wanted to do but I'd never had the time to do because, you know, when you promote wrestling. Right. And I had a regular job while I was promoting wrestling. So you can imagine between having a regular job and trying to produce weekly television uh. and 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 doing all this stuff to promote the live events that I basically barely had time to shut my eyes and sleep, let alone have a life or whatever. So, I mean, that was tough the idea of writing a book on top of all that out of the question. So I, I went after I got out of the hospital, I went back to work at a full-time job and went back to work for about six months and just the full-time job plus 12 hours a week of dialysis was just too much. And I knew right. I was going to have to come up with an end date for the job and just retire. And I retired last May and I said, okay, now I'm going to do the stuff that I really want to do. And so I uh, broke out the trusty laptop and I started writing. I started writing a completely different story. And then this came to me and I said, ah, I can see the whole thing. And I wrote this in three weeks. So it, it, it took some polishing. It wasn't just a three-week deal. I mean, But I wrote right. the basis of the story in three weeks and then polished it up over the next four or five weeks. And then out came a novel. So fascinating i'm glad yeah. you made it out of i'm glad you also made it out of uh being at mass general uh with your health issues 
Thank you. Um, Thank you. I feel better than I felt in like 10 years. It's crazy. That's great. No, that, that yeah. that's really yeah. great. I, I just because but I have my limitations, you know, there, there's, I'm, I'm not going to go back to promoting wrestling full time. You know, I, I wish I could put together a crew that could help me do that, but I, I just don't see that. Plus the business has really changed. Right. You know, when I started promoting wrestling in 2000, you know, there was a, a an aura and a sanctity of promotions at the time. Now, the guys have a different mindset, and any independent promoter, you're just the date on the calendar. You know, they don't they don't care about you know the kind of business you're trying to do or what you're trying to accomplish, but you're just the date on the calendar, and there's a very much a spot show mentality about all of these shows. And you see the same people on the same uh, on different cards, you know. I go to different local shows and I see the same people. It's the usual suspect, so to speak. And and there's continuity in some respects, but you know these these shows don't really have any market presence outside of the towns that they're in. And to some degree, that's not a terrible thing to be, you know, uh, lol wrestling or to be. You know fall river wrestling or whatever but you know i mean i i always had a little bit more ambition i wanted to be something a little bit more substantial than that and uh i, I it's a lot more difficult to do that now because of the mindset of talent and the fact that that there's such a a spot show mindset to all these different promotions that's it's a fair and accurate point because i've talked to mm. a lot we've talked to a lot of wrestlers on this program and mm. they're always talking about bookings it's like oh i'm here i'm here and it's just like and then also it's the tribalism i think that's part of it because it's just like it especially on social media my god it's just like oh you, if you like and, this and none company, of these shows none of these shows are doing anything that's going to elevate these people Right. That that's the crazy thing to me. Like, yeah, you you, you sold uh, you know uh, two hundred tickets in, in in Plainville, Massachusetts. Well, big deal. You know, I'm sure those people in Plainville enjoyed the show, and and that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. You you made 150 bucks, and you can go buy pizza at the end of the night. But you know, if you're a, a wrestler, it's not going to make you a better wrestler. You just no. went and rolled around in front of a bunch of people for, you know, a few minutes in, in, in a town. And then you're going to do the same thing in another town, probably with the same set of people. And and it, it's not gaining people anything in terms of, of expertise or in terms of, of, of you know, elevating them to anything else. Yeah. Craftsmanship. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there's a, a, a good part to wrestling on a regular basis and you know doing things but it's as i say it's not going to elevate those people to the next level it's just a show right and and there's no there's nothing coming out of that show that's going to make you more visible to people on a higher level right hmm. um if you had to give a mount rushmore for your favorite talent well obviously bruno would probably be at the, the head of it yeah mm -hmm. but who would be the three others that you would put up there mm -hmm. boy that's a tough one 
because there's so many. I don't know that I could limit it to three, you know. Morales was a tremendous champion. He doesn't get anywhere near the love. No, he doesn't. And that's unfortunate because I thought he was a great champion as well. Yeah, because it's just not not as much tape on him as there are on on, on other guys. And there's you know, Bruno there's limited a... stuff with Bruno, but I've seen enough Bruno to understand why he was a god. Yeah, and 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 everyone knows that he was a god. Everyone knows yeah. that he was that kind of a an icon. So you know that that that's something irrespective of of video evidence. That that's something that. You know, it was not a deniable thing. Um, Luthez in his day, I mean, I wasn't really around for a lot of his day, but but Luthez was certainly, you know, one of the greatest ever. I knew Luthez, and, um, you know, he was the real deal. When he walked into a room, you knew you were in the presence of somebody special. Buddy Rogers, same thing. Um, that's fascinating that you've like you talked to lou because that's that he's another one of those guys that's like i wish i could have picked his brain if you know because again like when i started to really get into this it was like he was already an advanced age and pretty much retired at that point but he was one of the guys that i always kind of wanted to get as much information on him as i could because he was the guy like for so long, like as far as national television is concerned, it was like him and Gorgeous George. Like those were the yeah. two guys in the fifties that were just neck and neck as far as what you yeah. could do. And then I think that they they did. Uh, I think he was. I forget where he was, but it may have been on San Francisco, where they actually had like news reports of him training for his match for that week. It was it was a yeah, different time, yeah. but they held Lou in such a huge standard is like he was right up there with like baseball players and football players of like this guy's legit you know back in his day in the 50s he was the the only athlete in america that made more money than luthez was the the world heavyweight boxing champion um verd god he was wrap your head around that for a moment Uh, that is considering considering how much tyson fury just made for his fight right right. (laughs) i've heard like 50 million to 100 million dollars you know, he was a guy that, that when he came to the arena in his crisp suit, carrying that, that Halliburton case with his gear and his championship belt, I mean, everybody just looked at him and, yes, sir, you know, that was, he was the man. There, there's a Luthez story in my book that that you'll enjoy, but um, that the, one of the characters tells, so... Uh, it, it- it's funny because it's I'm almost embarrassed because you're talking about like Pedro, Bruno, and Lou, where you you've met all these guys and 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 Buddy Rogers, and it's like yeah. the guys I would put on my Mount Rushmore: Flair, uh, mm-hmm. Steve mm-hmm. Austin, The Undertaker, yeah, and Hulk Hogan, yeah. and it's like I'm sure to some to some people, and I hope you're not scoffing at me for like how could you put Hogan on your, your Mount Rushmore? No, he's a, he's a valid choice. He's a, a va- he's a valid choice for his era. Yes. That that's the thing. He's a valid choice for his era. You know, Fess is a different era altogether. You can't compare him to the Hogans or the Flares or you you can't you can't put them in the same category because the business was something completely different when when he was when Lou was in his prime. You know, same thing with Ganya, same thing with Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers belongs on that Mount Rushmore. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I mean, I, there, there's there, there's lots of guys that you could you know look at and say, wow, they were these guys were tremendous. They were phenomenal. But it, it, you you go 20 years later and it's a different set of guys altogether, right? Because the business was something different. So I mean, there's nothing wrong with with saying you know Hogan, Flair, Savage, whatever, Piper, whatever. That it, it's valid for that era. No, you can't have one Mount Rushmore for pro wrestling. You've got to have multiple Mount Rushmores. I because I, the well, eras are so different. I I have them like for different. I have different decades and different promotions. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's usually how I I try to to kind of mm-hmm, play it out mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's so it's so vast like the landscape of it because if you're yeah. talking mm-hmm. territories you're talking decades and all this stuff right I mean right. Hogan can make the argument that he could be on two different ones of like the eighties and yeah yeah um mm-hmm. is I think that the reason why I was so kind of hard to kind of admit that Hogan is on my Mount Rushmore is just because of the fact it's like if we're going how could he not be compared to lou and compared though compared to lou and compared to like pedro and um you know even a vergania his wrestling ability is like mm-hmm. eh. hey but, you know i was very good friends with hero matsuda and hero trained hogan and hero told me that when he was done training that he said he was good he stood by him he says he was a lot better wrestler than people give him credit for but you know he was a man of his his era. He was a you know he he was what the doctor ordered at that particular point in time. Would he have translated to twenty years before? Probably not. No. I, I Would he think... translate to now? Who knows? But but he was you know he was a man of the moment. You know, and, and there's no denying it. I it it really is amazing going back though mm-hmm. and looking and thinking about that era because mm-hmm. i and i tell people all the time because they younger people will bring up they'll be like you know well you know this is the best time we've had in wrestling and i just look at them and i say you weren't around for the hogan era i said right. when you have right, right, right. these i said you had a cast of characters i mean you had Hogan, you had Savage, you had Don Morocco, you had Roddy Piper, you had these mm-hmm. ridiculous, I mean, and the funny part is, is that my fiance, we've been together, we've been together 10 years. And she's known that I've been a nutcase about this sport for so long. And we ended up, so I'm starting to actually incorporate her in some stuff. I showed her some Dark Side of the Ring stuff, and I'm mm-hmm. incorporating her into some some wrestling stuff. But she under, she... I showed her some Roddy Piper stuff and she's just like, he's a complete lunatic. I love him. Like mm. all this like little stuff. Uh, and she was somebody that's just like, Oh God, it's the worst. She came into it just like completely negative on the industry. But I think that there's some aspects that she appreciates of it. Um, you know, but she's also more of a Broadway fan as well. So it's like, and so a good story is a good story. It really is. The tights are different, but it's a good story. It's a good story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you go to the Cauliflower Alley Club uh, reunion or this past summer? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, were you there for the CM Punk? That, that was I was I right was. after the firing. I like, I, I, I got to tell you, I went up to him and I said, Phil, I, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Sheldon Goldberg. He says, nobody forgets Sheldon Goldberg. 
<laughs> so I thought that was a pretty funny because he was supposed to come out and work for me on our first anniversary show. It was supposed to be him, Colt Cabana, and Chris Hero. They were all supposed to come together. And for whatever reason, they couldn't pull off their transportation. A car died or right. some, some crazy thing like that, and they never made it. Years later, Cabana worked for me, working against Adam Pierce in the Seven Levels of Hate. We we hosted two of those matches. All oh, right, I forgot about that. And, and and I teased him about this, and 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 he he cut a promo about it, which was kind of fun. But uh, uh, no, I loved all those guys. I I thought the world of all of them from back then. And I said, I I was your fan long before. He said, Yeah, you were there before anybody was hip to me. And I said, Yeah, yeah. He's he's but that was of... funny. Yeah, nobody forgets Sheldon Goldberg. Gee <laughs> whiz. <forgets. laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're thinking, who do I have heat with? Like what? <laughs> right, right. I'm sure I've got heat with a lot of people, but not that many, you know. Yeah, I mean I've got I've got I'm I'm well thought of by far more than I have heat with. Uh, thank goodness, you know. I mean, I, the thing about it is, is that and I said it before, I said, I don't know many people that do have heat with you because as a promoter, you, I, I hear oh, things, some, you know, I, I hear, well, yeah, but they're probably, is it because of the fact that they never made they're, it or is it because of the fact that, like, no, you know, they're either, they're either jealous or I, I, I tried to do things for them and they didn't get it. But, you know, it, it happens. It's an ego business. You know, I, I wasn't trying to, to get anything over on anybody. I was trying to help everybody that I was working with. I was trying to elevate the situation. And, you know, what can you do? Some people take it the right way and some people don't. Most people do. But, you know, there's always a few that, you know, you can be Mother Teresa in wrestling. and There's always somebody who's going to be calling you a, a crack whore and a miserable human being or whatever so you know it, it comes with the territory uh, you know there it's a very polarizing business there's some people that are just very either you can go either way on them um, it's an ego business it really is it, yeah it really and it, is. either you know you either feed into their ego or you don't and sometimes you you can't you sometimes you just have to say hey this is what it is and maybe some people don't like that or whatever but i'm, I'm not I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything to harm anybody. I never tried to to cheat anybody out of anything or steal anything from anyone. I've had people try to steal stuff from me, but not the other way around. You know, I, I'm too busy trying to be in business and, you know, do something positive and try to be some kind of success at it to worry about getting over on somebody. Well, plus as a promoter, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm going to get taken care of, but I also want to bring everybody with me. I want to bring my crew, you know, and yeah. my wrestlers to be able to be able to earn a living at this. They're not paying to see me. So, no. you know, yeah. The only time I promote any, the only time anybody paid to see a promoter was when Vince McMahon was a heel. I said that was the only time. Yeah, but he wasn't a promoter at that point. No, he, he was, was a, a performer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so still maybe they paid the to shots, see him as the but... worker, but they weren't paying to see him the promoter. So yeah, I mean, yeah. that talk about a negative into a positive because mm -hmm. that he came out of that with the Montreal screw job, which everybody has said. They said he thought he was the baby face coming out of that, and everybody was telling him, "Like, no, you're the heel. Like, just go with it, and we'll make a lot of money." 
and pretty much that's what kind of turned the tide because yeah 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 we talked about 97 earlier we touched on it of just like how much of a weird year it was for wwf Mm -hmm. um and wcw was just that nwo thing that's still selling it's been over 25 years and i look at the i look at the charts every every so often where they put them out and it's like nwo still top five in merch i'm like it's crazy isn't it (laughs) it's insane it's crazy it struck such a nerve yeah well, I, I think yeah. that was what I started to notice because I was when I was in school, I think I was in junior high at this point. Mm-hmm. Um no one was talking about. It. No one was talking about wrestling. And then one day one summer I came back, it was after Hogan turn. Mm-hmm. And then there was like a buzz in the hallway that just like, oh, I wonder who's gonna be the next guy in the NWO. I'm like, wait a right, second, right, you right, guys right. two years ago. Yeah. Like, and mm-hmm. And then it just grew from that. Like your yeah. NWO shirts yeah. are showing up. Austin 316 shirts are showing up. DX shirts are showing up. And then everybody, like, I remember one of the Russell, I used to have WrestleMania parties and it was half my school was at my house one year. Like it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My parents still argue about that. They're just like, why the hell mm-hmm. did you have to invite them? I'm like, I, I didn't invite anybody. It was word of mouth. Like, 10 mm. people told mm. 10 people that was how it happened. I don't know what you want me to say. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have any great Boston Magarden memories? Because I'm sure you were in that building probably. Oh, I was there the night the time. ring broke. Bruno San Martino versus Gorilla Monsoon the night the ring broke. Oh, good Lord. What year was that? If, if anything, that was uh, 66 maybe. Okay. 65. Oh man. I got to tell you, you know, Tony rumble was there that night. And I, of course I didn't know him, <laughs> but we both talked about, Oh, the night you were there the night. Oh my God. Every, that was what got him into wrestling. And that's what solidified it for me. Cause when people would say, Oh, that stuff, it's all fake. No, that wasn't fake. That ring broke, man. Those two guys broke that ring. That was not fake. Oh my God! What a what a scene that was! Unbelievable, um, crazy. I, Gorilla was actually the first wrestler that I ever met. Actually, he was a commentator mm. at this point. This is like '93. Yeah, um, and it was actually outside of the old Worcester Auditorium. I don't know if you've ever been in that mm. building. Mm. Um, sure. Yeah, and, and I just remember I was ten years old, and he just. You didn't think about it like watching him on TV because it was just like, oh, he's just an announcer. But then I, I shook his hand and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy's massive. <laughs> yeah. Like he was. I love that guy. Huge. I've heard another guy that I've never heard a bad story about from anybody. Yeah. People love the guy. You know, I, I, I met him. Uh, we had him at a cauliflower alley one year in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I, we, I, I was the one that uh, presented him with an award, and what a thrill that was! What, what just a, you know, what a, a chance to say thank you to somebody that that, you know, you admired so much, and you know, he was a guy, not just a great wrestler in his day, even when he was the Manchurian Giant and didn't speak any any English or whatever, but just you know, as an announcer, as a booker, as a as a just a human being. What a what a great guy. My God. 
I always thought he was a great announcer. And I know Oh yeah, me too. A lot of a lot of dirt sheets, not so much. They always were hard on him. But I thought he was amazing. And I, I tell everybody, I'm like, he was almost the soundtrack of my childhood because it was just like yeah, these yeah. key moments, like these absolute key moments, like WrestleMania one, WrestleMania two or three. He's there. Like he's the voice that you're hearing. And he, he had that combination of of sports announcer credibility mixed with that that sarcasm that that made him so entertaining. Yeah, and, you, you could, know, you put him. You could definitely yeah, tell you, that when he was there was something he, he thought was just complete yeah, crap. Yeah. Like he was just he yeah. was just. No, I got I got to know Gordon Soli was the total opposite, and oh. and I love Gordon. I thought Gordon was just the greatest, and you know, the funny story of me meeting Gordon for the first time was in Springfield, Massachusetts, at that Cauliflower Alley, and we're I'm in the bar with a couple of people, and Gordon sits down with us. And he starts talking and Gordon starts swearing up a storm. <laughs> now, imagine if you're sitting in a bar or restaurant with Walter Cronkite and Walter goes, well, F this guy and F that guy. And oh, he was he was a son of a you know what, and blah, blah, blah. You would just fall out. And I just I, I it could barely keep it together. Let me tell you something about old. Let me tell you something about Jim Hurd. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. But what a guy! What what a, what a, what a tremendous announcer and what a tremendous person. And I wish I had known at that moment that I was going to eventually do some kind of announce announcing or commentary because I would have picked his brain more on it than I ever got to do. And uh, but um, you, I. I did. I always liked your announcing. I always thank yours, you. because number one, you had the credibility because you had your knowledge again is vast. Like it, mm-hmm. it, where mine is. Everybody looks at me and they're just like, "You know more than pretty much most." And I said, "There's a couple of guys that know more," and obviously you were one of the ones that I was referring to because I was just like. Mm-hmm. Y- you were somebody that was like, I need to be able to sit down with this guy and be able to pick his brain because there's so many things that I need to know that he's seen or some aspect of something that maybe I'm missing on something. What town are you in? Worcester. Oh, we'll have to get together sometime. Yeah, without question. No, that, that, or whatever. that would be great. No, that, yeah, that would be yeah. great because yeah. I, um, I, I, it's just, I love this industry. Absolutely adore it. Mm-hmm. it. It's one of those mm-hmm. things that just I hope one day to make like a, a really good living with it. But at the same time, it's like it is what it is. That's very, very it's, hard to do. You know, it is, you know, and it's yeah. just like and I've I hey, I've everything that I'm I wanted... still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I'll sell a lot of books. No, I think you will. Maybe somebody will I, make this book into a movie or a TV series. I mean, they should. I think a TV. I mean, Netflix. You got Hulu. You got all these streaming channels. Yeah, now that, yeah, 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 um, yeah. I'm surprised Heels didn't do too well. Uh, didn't do better on Stars because I thought that that was actually mm-hmm. a pretty good project. Um, yeah, I, I I took some issue with some of the storytelling, but you know, <laughs> I think when 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 you read the Last Fall. 
you'll you'll read it in the context of how realistic it is, even though it's fiction. And uh, you know, I had I had a tremendous fun writing it. You know, it wasn't a chore at all. It was like wow. I, now once I figured the story out, I mean, oh wow, this is going to be fun to sit here and flesh all of this out. So, did you um, did you have to kind of did you go to any like resources that you might know, like friends, to kind of maybe help out with like timeline continuity, or did you? kind of remember everything almost like no i remembered everything but but what i what i had to do was um uh get information on venues and because there's some real venues that that are mentioned in the story and real places and i wanted to to describe those places as accurately as i could for the book even though i'd never been there so uh so yeah there was there was that but that that that's really the only research that i did um how much wrestling do you still watch now like um do you watch weekly tv or do you kind of tap into like some of the old stuff that that i'll no i'll I'll watch i'll watch some aew i'll watch a wwe pay-per-view every now and then but i won't watch all the time every week because it's just too much there's too much it's wrestling overload (laughs) you know it's wrestling od you know you can just like Watch wrestling till your eyes glaze over. I think uh, I still like to go into Peacock and watch some of the old Madison Square Garden house shows from oh. the seventies and yeah, from the the pre you know national era or the pre eighty four. Uh, I get I get a kick out of a lot of that stuff. I I do the same thing, like especially on YouTube. YouTube is a great source for that stuff. Yeah, like, uh, mm-hmm. watching the old Prism shows from Philadelphia, yeah. the old the old Nesson shows, because you know that was during the territory age where it was just like they had their own. Well, no, Nesson Nesson was after '84, so right, but yeah. n- not that not territory, but Prism was regional. before. Yeah. Madison Square Garden and Prism were, were before. Yeah. Um. Not, were you kind of like when Nesson when WWF was on Nesson? Was that one of those things of whoa like was your mind kind of blown at that point because it's just like you know mm. red Sox and now wwf on the same network not really yeah. you know vince was expanding all over the country and doing all these things so any bit of expansion that he did i was surprised that they had the house shows uh that they showed them like that right but then i saw what they were doing with them turning them into things like primetime wrestling and stuff like that so then it made it made a lot more sense and i'm sure that that nesson paid a pretty penny yeah i um i i wasn't really into it back then because at that point i i was i didn't get into it mm-hmm. until i the the distinctly remember i was eight years old and the first show that i ever watched was the royal rumble of 1991 and mm-hmm. then ever since then it's kind of like it everything since then is wrestling as concerns have been colorized like right, that's right, right. everything i remember um but i've wanted i've deep dived into stuff too back from way back in the uh, the, the 80s the 70s mm-hmm. the 60s um i remember getting a tape my brother got me um the heroes and villains it was all black and white and it was the comiskey park show when pat o'connor lost to 
Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. I think it was in '61 um, mm-hmm. when he won the when he won the NWA Championship, and I was just like, not it was not something I used to, but it was still kind of watching it and just understanding and being a part of it, uh, and seeing of like, okay, these still tropes and things still carry on today. Right. Um, it's just maybe the volume is turned up to like 14, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then too, I've also been looking at more into like British wrestling as well, because that's a whole kind of entity that's fascinating. Yeah, I love that me. old world of sports stuff, man. That's oh, it's really good. Oh, so good. Um, yeah. It, I still love showing just to, cause I have so many friends that argue about like bad booking and like bad finishes and all that stuff. I'm like, can I show you Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But and then, then you can watch, watch, you know, then the flip side of that is you watch guys like, you know, Mark Rocco and, and Johnny Saint and uh, Nick Les Kellett and yep. Adrian Street, people like that from his British time and all that. And Dynamite Kid from England and all that. And this just that stuff is tremendous. Dynamite was you know? amazing. Like I just yeah, yeah. You know, Tom like you know this his after career was really kind of heartbreaking and tragic, but I mean right. the resume that mm-hmm. he put up, he was at least I would you could make the argument he was twenty to twenty-five years ahead of his time as far as work rate is concerned. Sure. Because yeah, yeah. he was mm-hmm. so fast and mm. so hard hitting where doing things that these guys now do, they do it pretty much every week. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's that's kind of one thing that has always annoyed me now of like how everybody now has to take a dive. Like, you got 350 pound guys doing like moon, like moon salts is one thing because Vader used to do mm-hmm. it, but like yeah. when they're doing like topes and like these flips where you're just sitting there, and you're like, and everybody just falls around like bowling pins, mm-hmm. and it, it, that's the stuff where I just look at it and I'm like. This is maybe on the hokey side because it's like mm-hmm. every and plus it's just no one's different because if the guy at 200 pounds could do it, and the guy at 350 right. can do it. Then what do they do? Like there's if everybody right. could do it. Right. Like, does that mean your yeah. grandmother could do it? Yeah. By the way, you know, NECW was hip to British wrestling before anybody else was in this era. I mean, I, Doug Williams had his first match in America in New England Championship Wrestling. We had Johnny that. Storm, Jody Fleisch. We had a kid named Paul Tyrell who was fantastic. Um, yeah, so I, we we were hip to all that before anybody else was. So um, once again, I was ahead of my time. Bad uh, you know, habit I... of mine. <laughs> <laughs> You're like I should have patented this. Damn it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, does it does it ever get to like your the point of where you're like you see another promoter that you know does not kind of maybe is not putting in the work that you are and they're that most, would be most of them <laughs> well yeah and then they're more successful yeah, yeah, you're just yeah. sitting there and you're like how is this possible like i have a good product i have great talent i have great mm-hmm. ideas why is this guy doing this I never look at it like that. You know, I, I just see some guys like I see it's beyond wrestling and limitless wrestling. And and 
you know, the, the lack of continuity and sure, they got some good talent. I'm not going right. to take that away from them. You know, that beyond some of their shows, I watched some of them on when they were on uh, Pluto TV, they used to have a pro wrestling channel and they'd show some of the beyond stuff and some of the limitless stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I'd see, you know, some of the beyond's old cards and you get a lot of quality guys right. and girls and so forth. And they, they did some quality stuff. But there was a complete lack of continuity, a complete lack of. Uh, I mean, I got to give him his due because you know he draws and and he's obviously tapped into a, a market that that supports what he does. Um, but then I'll see something like you know Limitless Wrestling, and they have a, they had a show at one point called The Road, and it should have been called The Load because it sure smelled like one. Let me tell you, it was that <laughs> bad. I just thought. The, the announcing was that was that mystery science theater 3000 you know everybody's parody of pro wrestling yeah just it was shot poorly in a in a, a what looked like a vfw hall or so in front of no fans and they couldn't help that because of the pandemic but i mean the promos were not produced at all they were just horribly shot and it just took this talent that are trying to do something worthwhile. And it just made them look like rank amateurs and they're making them sound like rank amateurs by with the commentary. And I just think that it was just such a waste and so wrong. Like you're not building anybody up with this. What are you doing? Right. But, and, and I, you know, what can I say? You know, these, these people are doing stuff and they seem to be successful in different ways, but I, I, I don't, think that they none of them are breaking through to another level you know they're at a certain level and that's it and maybe they're happy with that and maybe that's fine for them and good but you know they're not going to be anything more than what they are and if they're happy with that good but if if they they have designs on being something bigger than that then they have to approach it in a different way but you know hey their business is their business good luck to them and you know that's really all I can say. Um, it's funny because I had a kid that worked with me over the summer at my job, and he's been at beyond. Mm. He's been taking courses to be a wrestler. Just got mm. out of high school, and um, I was he he was talking to me. He always picks my brain because he knows I've been to this and I've been. You know, I've been watching for a long time, so there's things that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he might pick up on. And we were talking, and, and I said, uh, "Has anybody from beyond reached out to the Worcester Red Sox about running Polar Park?" And he's just like, "I think that they've been kind of." He's like, "He's kicked the tires, but they haven't really gotten back to him." I said, "I think what." polar park is waiting for is they're waiting for maybe another major promotion to come in before they start doing that um and i because i i don't know if you've been there it's the new ballpark in worcester that they've okay i know what it is but i've never been yeah there. it's the it, it's the new crown jewel in downtown worcester pretty much as they mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. and um you know I, I when i went to the building the first time i said yeah it'd be perfect for a show because the way everything's seated um yeah Yeah. and Mm -hmm. my brain is constantly working and i'm just like okay you know but the question Mm -hmm. is who you gonna who's gonna run it first they're probably gonna want AEW or wwe to come in first 
Um, NXT am, or whatever. Yeah. Right. I'm, But I'm also a big proponent because WWE has been running a lot of, you know, especially with their major shows, they're running stadiums for the Rumble. They're running stadiums for WrestleMania and for SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that Fenway Park hosts SummerSlam? No. Yeah. No. They're not doing that because the city's not bidding on it. Uh, a lot of times these venues are paying. That's true. There's somebody paying for them to run that. That's their philosophy now, and they're not. I don't blame them. You know, I mean, it's like if someone's paying you to. I mean, come they might do town. a house show, or you know, they might do a house show in an NXT or whatever. There's talk of that at one point, but you know, you got to remember that there's another factor. In that, and that's weather. Right. Especially in this region. You know I mean? It's very Yeah, especially in this region. That's a it's hard to run. I hated running outdoor shows. Right. You're you're taking your life in your hands when you're doing that because what happens if it if there's a big storm? And I've had that happen once or twice. I had to postpone a uh, a fair show because there was an impending hurricane and they made us change it to the next day. So oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, really? It's an act of God that's coming in and stopping the show. It's it's not like well, you know that, that happens. You you know you want to accommodate your people that are buying the show from you, but you know by the same token, it's like you know that it's a concern. You know, um, well, it's the same argument because I got friends that tell me they're like, well, why haven't they run Gillette for WrestleMania? I'm like, because Gillette is an hour away from the airports. And the fact that there's really not many hotel companies. The city's not bidding on it. No. The area's not bidding on it. They're not they're not gonna get it. It's not gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I it was I'm actually going to um the Royal Rumble in Tampa, uh mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. At, at the TROP. I just got tickets last mm-hmm, week. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. so I'm excited for that because it's number one, it's my first Royal Rumble. And uh yeah, my parents they go between St. Pete and boston uh as far as fenway and they go to the trop to see the rays if they're playing the red Sox or something like mm-hmm, that and mm-hmm. they've been telling me because i only know the legend and I, i've just been like yeah uh, the building i've never been into it they tell me it's a, a really nice building it's a lot better than what i i've mm-hmm. been perceived but i'm still kind of interested to see how the setup's going to be because well, they did host shows before, but that was in front of no people. <laughs> so mm-hmm. during the uh was um how did the pandemic kind of affect uh your mindset to the wrestling business of like uh this is well, it shut it, me down. Yeah. That that's what it did. That's yeah. how it affected me. It shut me down. Yeah. You know, we couldn't run anything. You know, there are other people that, oh, well, we're going to run something somewhere somehow. And I just said, no, I'm right. not going to put people in danger. Forget it. Not going right. to happen. You know, we you worried about you the can't liability. Run, you can't run. We worried about the liabilities of it or you just morally. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Not just the liabilities with spectators, but the liabilities with the talent themselves. It's you like, you, I can't afford testing. You know, it's like. You can't afford testing. You can't let people wrestle in, in, in face masks. You know, it just, it just, no, just, yeah. just don't do it. You know, 
And I saw a lot of people try to run stuff for the sake of running it because nobody else was running and they fell on their faces because people were afraid. Now people want to go out. They want to have that live event experience. Right. And they want to have more importantly, an inexpensive live event experience. You, know, you can't go to, to WWE without spending a fortune. You can't go to the Celtics without spending a fortune. You can't go to the Red Sox without spending, you know, several weeks pay. You can't go to, you know, the Bruins or any the Patriots or anything else without spending gigantic money. And people just, you know, I, I always believed if you give people a good product at a reasonable price, you'll get them to come again and again. I believe that. And a lot it of what's works. happening in wrestling now bears me out on that. Right. Uh, well, I mean, it so, worked. You were successful yeah. for so long yeah, where people yeah. kept coming back. And I'm sure you, there were regulars that were there every month, every show. Venues became hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard. You know, we, we were running the uh, uh, AmeriCal Civic Center in 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 uh, um, in uh, Oh, what's the town? W Town, Wakefield, Wakefield, Wakefield. Yeah, and uh, you know, suddenly the 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 people that were running it were out, and the the town of Wakefield was running it instead. Right. And now oh, you have to have a police detail, and you have to we we have all these other things that we want to do in here, and you know, it was very clear that they didn't want us in, but because we had been sort of grandfathered in, they had to put up with us. And then I had an accident and broke my shoulder and I was out for a while. So that was the end of that. But, um, you know, venues are really tough. Venues are tough. It's hard to find. And a lot of these places that you go into, they're not set up for the purpose. No. You know, so any place you go into, it's a compromise. You're going to try to jerry-rig it to look like it's a a place that holds wrestling. And um, it's hard. And, and that's on, the hardest part of it. That's why I wanted my own place. And then on top of that, a lot of these Elks Lodges and a lot of these Knights mm-hmm. of Columbus buildings, and yeah. they're going through downsizing. And mm-hmm. a lot of those venues that you had before are no longer available because right. they're no longer offering it. And right. that makes right. it, you know, because I, um, Growing up, uh, we I used my dad was an elk, so we would go to the Elks Lodge mm-hmm. every Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. The promotion that I worked for in Worcester, they ran that same uh, Elks Lodge that that uh, that I was in when I was a little kid, which was really cool. But then after a couple of years, they sell the building, and now it's completely something different. So it's just like that takes away that yeah. avenue for <clears throat> indie wrestling, where it's like <clears throat> that yeah. building's no longer available. It's like oh right. Man. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially with independent wrestling, because you want an intimate setting. You want it to look, you know, like where you're, even if you're in the fourth or fifth row, you're right on top of the action. Right. Right. I have to admire what Beyond did with running nightclubs. Yep. And not having seats and and making it like a nightclub type thing. So that's kind of ingenious on their part. Um. I don't know that I'd run without seats and have people right up at the apron banging their fists on the apron. I don't know that I'd do that, but 
But I think um, they're running the White Eagle Club in Worcester, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. downstairs is a bar, and then upstairs is a is the the main venue function hall. Yeah, yeah, the function hall. Um, and yeah. I talked to the the kid that's doing the training, and I said, "So they have the ring stationary there?" He's like, "No, we have to take it down every week." I'm like, "Oh God, that's brutal." Because they have the wrestling open every. That's Thursday. yeah. That that that's life. That that that's independent wrestling life. That's what they have to do. I, so. Which I guess your thought process mm-hmm. of owning a building, it's like I could just have the ring there and just leave it, and right? Not have to worry about ring set light it and set stuff. it up exactly the way we want it, and that that would be it. We came I, close to getting a situation like that, and it just didn't work out at the end. But well. Sheldon, I literally could pick your brain for hours and hours on end. Um, but you're a busy man. Of course, you have a book that's coming out the last fall. Check it out on anywhere you can find books, especially on Amazon. Get it on Kindle. Well, Get Amazon is where you can find it. Amazon, yeah. or you can go to necw.tv slash events. You can get an autographed copy direct from me. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Without Sheldon, uh is an absolute gentleman uh and i think an absolute scholar as well so i know this book is going to be fascinating and definitely something that any wrestling fan or any person of a good novel is also going to enjoy i want to hear what you think of it after you've read it absolutely i will Mm -hmm. i'll definitely check it out Mm -hmm. um sheldon we're gonna can i promise to have you back on this program because i feel like absolutely i'd love to do it uh yes uh sheldon will definitely be somebody that we're going to want to have back um because of his perspective on everything and it was just there's so many other questions i i want to ask and about different times different performers and things of that nature you're an absolute wealth of knowledge um i hope the book does extremely well um and thank you again for coming on this program like it really was an honor to have you on here my pleasure thank you daniel all right and folks again the last fall find it on amazon kindle um or hard copy or go to new england championship wrestling website and get a signed copy of course from sheldon himself thank you again sheldon for being on the program and thank you again for listening to pro wrestling world talks thank you again